1: Today on Something You Should Know, why small kids should never be left alone with a dog. Then understanding willpower and how to use it to your advantage.
2: You know, one thing that's really important is to not look out at other people and assume that they have this amazing strength that we lack. And what I've actually found in, in working with people on willpower challenges over the years is that all of us, when we find a goal that's really important to us, we all have these strengths.
1: Also, the germiest thing on your dining room table you need to clean right now. And everything you ever wanted to know about blue jeans, where they come from, why they're so popular, and why we call them jeans.
3: The word jeans comes from uh, Genoa, Italy, which was a major uh, shipping port in the Middle Ages. And the French called the Genoans the Genes. And uh, one of the things that they made in Genoa was sort of a precursor to denim material, which was known as jean cloth.
1: Hey, welcome to Something You Should Know. I want to start today with something I think is so important, and that is the subject of children and dogs. Because most of us think of children and dogs as as a wonderful combination. And in, in some cases, maybe it is, but it can also be a very dangerous combination. A study that was reported in the British Medical Journal concluded that children should never be left alone with dogs, unsupervised. Never. Period. End of story. Why? Because under certain conditions, any dog will bite, and dog bites can be severe. Children need to be taught how to behave around dogs, so the dog doesn't feel threatened. So, kids have to learn how to avoid direct eye contact with a dog. They have to be reminded not to run or scream or startle a strange dog. Never pet a dog without letting the dog sniff them first. And never disturb a dog that's eating, sleeping, or caring for their puppies. There also seems to be a correlation between dog bites and warm weather. Dogs are much more likely to bite when the temperatures rise. And that is something you should know. How many times have you said to yourself, I wish I had more willpower? It's pretty common, I suspect. We all struggle with wanting to do something or stop doing something that's really, really hard to do. Well, Kelly McGonigal is a psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University and author of the book The Willpower Instinct, How Self-Control Works, Why It Matters, and What You Can Do to Get More of It. And I don't know anybody who knows more about willpower than she does. And she's here to shed some light on this very important topic. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. So what is willpower?
2: I define willpower as the ability to do what matters most to you, even when it's difficult, or especially when some part of you wants to do something else. So like, when you think about the word willpower, what's something that challenges you? What would you say you need to use willpower for?
1: I need willpower, I think, for a lot of things, but the the biggest challenge I find is perhaps late at night when, you know, there's something in the kitchen, a piece of pie I could go eat that I probably know I shouldn't. And if it were in the morning, I wouldn't do it. But in the evening, I don't seem to have as much willpower and uh, I'm more likely to cave.
2: That is such a great example for a couple of reasons. One, you have perfectly described, I think the central challenge of willpower, which is that there are a lot of things in life where there's one part of us that wants one thing and another part of us that wants something else. So maybe in this case, when you're in the kitchen, there's a part of you who wants health, longevity, vitality, whatever it is that's making you think you shouldn't have that extra piece of cake or dessert. And then there's another part of you that thinks it's going to taste really good right now. And maybe you're feeling a little low on energy and you want a little pick-me-up and it's just calling your name. And there's this competition of selves, the two parts of yourself. And one way to think about willpower is it's the ability to remember what that sort of long-term self or wiser self wants so that you're not constantly giving in to immediate gratification. But the other thing you said that's so, I think, important for people to realize is, you know, willpower is not a fixed thing. It's not the case that if you have a lot of willpower, you always have a lot of willpower, like it's a personality trait. It actually is is more like an energy or strength that we draw on And it is the case, as you described, that when we're tired, when we haven't had enough sleep, when our blood sugar is low, or when we're feeling really stressed out, we often have less access to our willpower and we're more likely to give in to immediate gratification.
1: And when I do that, and I think when most people do that, you know, the test of failing willpower is the next day you think to yourself, yeah, geez, I really wish I hadn't.
2: Yes, and you know, that actually is a great moment to reinforce your willpower. So, you know, when we think about what willpower is, we're often thinking of that, I won't power, the part of you who maybe the night before should have said no and closed the refrigerator door. Um, And that's just one part of willpower, the ability to not give in to temptation. But we often don't talk about um, this other aspect of willpower that I call, I want power. And that's the ability to be really clear about what it is you care about. Um, what's most important to you. And when you're really clear about that, it actually makes it easier when you're faced with that choice, that moment of temptation or that moment of anxiety or dread to find the courage or the strength to make the choice that's consistent with your biggest goals, your most important values.
1: Is willpower, do you think, a virtue? Uh, and what I mean by that is, for example, when you look at like world-class athletes who train like crazy and they they deny themselves a lot of things to get their body to look like that and to perform like that. And I don't think I have that. I don't think I can do that. And is what they have a virtue that, that just some people have and some people don't.
2: You know, one thing that's really important is to not look out at other people and assume that they have this amazing strength that we lack. Um, Often when we look at athletes, yeah, they might have amazing willpower because a certain goal is really important to them. And you'll see that in some aspects of their life, like in training or in diet. Um, But it may be the case that in other aspects of their life, they're falling apart a little bit. You know, maybe they're having affairs or they're gambling or they're struggling with drugs and alcohol. And what I've actually found in, in working with people on willpower challenges over the years is that all of us When we find a goal that's really important to us, we all have these strengths, the ability to resist temptation, to put our energy toward what matters most to us. I call that the I will power. We can find the I won't power to say no to the things that get in the way if we have a strong enough want power. And I would guess that if I were to analyze your life, I'd find something in your life where you're showing tremendous willpower because it's what matters most to you. And what matters most to you is not necessarily being a world-class athlete or, you know, sculpting the perfect body.
1: Well, I think it's a perception that people often have is when you see a world-class anybody, athlete, business person, actor, that that they're so on top of their game in that, that they must be on top of their game in all elements of life. But I always suspect that if if you're so self-disciplined and self-controlled in one area, that that your humanness has got to, you know, leak out somewhere else, that you're, you can't be on top of your game in every aspect of your life.
2: Yeah, I think that actually is the case, and you often see that. But um, there is a, a common idea in the science of willpower that willpower is a limited resource. It's a kind of a controversial idea right now, but um, I've actually found it quite helpful when people are thinking about making important changes in their lives to understand that if there's something that you're spending a lot of time and energy trying to control... And you want to change something else in your life, you might need to shift some of that control, some of that energy away from the other thing so that you can put your energy and attention toward what what matters most right now. This idea that we could ever be perfect human beings who are controlling every thought, every action, every temptation, um, that's not really what willpower is about. I think it's. that's why I define it as being able to choose what matters most.
1: Well, I, I think that's really key to this discussion, because so often I think when we think of willpower, we think in terms of being able to deny ourselves something. But what, what you're saying, if I hear you correctly, is that it, if it's not just what you're not going to do, but if you have something that you do want to do, it makes it, it, makes it easier.
2: Exactly. And in fact, when we talk about willpower being a bit of a limited resource, it seems like the I won't power is actually more limited than our I will power. That is when we have a positive motivation and there's something that we want to chase or there's a goal that we're we're making progress toward, that often is more motivating. We have more energy behind it than when we're constantly trying to say no to something. It's why often when people are trying to quit a bad habit, one of the pieces of advice you'll often hear is you have to find something to replace it with or you have to be very clear about how when you say no to that cigarette what is it you're saying yes to? Is it being a good role model for your kids? Is it that you're saying yes to um, in, you know, an extra year of your life? And you can make that kind of concrete link in your mind um, because like you said, just saying no all the time to something that seems like it might feel good right now or might be easier right now, that can actually be exhausting. And, and we weren't born to have unlimited reserves to say no to immediate gratification or comfort.
1: Well, there is that rational rationalizing that humans do of, you know, what's one more cigarette? What's one more piece of pie? I could skip the gym today. It's not going to make any difference.
2: Yes, there are a lot of cognitive traps that we fall into when we're we're trying to make a change or make progress on our goals. Um, one of them is this idea we have that our future self is going to have more willpower than our current self. And it's actually it's a funny psychological phenomenon. Um, researchers have found that if you ask people how much free time do you think you'll have a few weeks in the future, how much energy do you think you'll have, how much self control do you think you'll have, we we idealize our future selves. And we think that our future self is going to be able and willing to do something that is really hard for us right now. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons why we say, well, just one more, you know, cigarette or drink today and tomorrow a fresh start. Um, and I always encourage people to take the smallest positive action that is possible for your present self, because actually, you know, one of the ways that we strengthen our willpower is by making very small choices that just asks, ask us to flex one of our willpowers, to delay giving in for say five minutes, even if you end up giving in. We know from the science that that actually builds willpower like a muscle, so that we're capable of actually doing more tomorrow. That's how we get a future self that actually is stronger.
1: So you mean if if you're craving that piece of pie, tell yourself, wait five minutes, just wait five minutes.
2: Yes. And you know, some people think that's a trick and you'll forget about it. But Even if you eat it and you went through that delay of five minutes, here's what you have strengthened. So first of all, we know that if people even define a choice as a willpower challenge, it increases their chances that that they will make a choice consistent with their their bigger goals. And then if you actually get through those five minutes, you're doing something that um, researchers sometimes refer to as surfing the urge. It's the strategy of acknowledging in this moment, some part of me really wants to give in. And maybe you feel that desire, you feel that anxiety, you feel that impatience and rather than trying to distract yourself and pretend like it's not happening, you actually let yourself feel it, acknowledge it and feel yourself saying no for 10 seconds, for 30 seconds, for a minute, for five minutes. And studies also show that when people go through that process, even if they give in, at the end of three minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes, that the next time they go through that process, they can delay longer or they actually end up delaying completely. And in fact, this um, technique that I just described, this like notice the temptation and try to resist it while paying attention to it, it's been shown to be more effective for quitting smoking than actually nicotine replacement therapy. What
1: about the idea? uh, I think it's kind of conventional wisdom in trying to make a change or to do something like lose weight or whatever it is that you can't deprive yourself forever and so that you know if you if you're a good 6 days out of the week that the 7th day you can cheat kind of thing that that you have to have some reward for sticking to it how does that work in this
2: but a lot of times people identify with the part of themselves that really just wants the immediate relief or the immediate gratification and that's when they can fall into this trap of trying to reward themselves for resisting. So, you know, if I ate a healthy breakfast, then I can reward myself with an unhealthy lunch because part of you is thinking like who I really am is the person who wants the unhealthy food. And so I have to, I have to express that part of myself in order to balance out the suppression or the repression of my true self that happened at breakfast when I ate something healthy. And if we can get very clear about who we are and what our values are, it's less likely we're going to fall into that trap. Um, you know, you only have to bribe yourself or reward yourself for being good if who you think you really are is bad. And I actually don't even like to use those moral terms. The other thing I will say is that you know, it's also the case that when we engage in a behavior over time, it often becomes more intrinsically rewarding. Exercise is a perfect example of this. So is saving money or paying down your debt. There are a lot of things that don't sound fun until you've been doing it for a while and you start to get better at it and you start to realize, I really like how I feel when I'm doing this and I really like how I feel after I've done it. And a lot of the things that we think of as as being uh, a chore that we have to endure because it's good for us, if they actually are good for us in the sense that they, they help us have more energy, more health, more happiness, they give us more control over our lives, if they really are good for us, they will feel good in the long term. And so it's not the case that you're going to have to, for the rest of your life, try to bribe yourself to, to do the quote-unquote good thing.
1: Kelly McGonigal is here. She is a psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University and author of the book, The Willpower Instinct.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
1: So, Kelly, this may be just a complete rationalization people use, but but the idea of willpower is basically... in most of our minds basically the ability to do something you don't want to do or to not do what you do want to do and I th-
2: know it's exactly the opposite of what I think willpower really is and it's because oh gosh there's so many reasons why it's part of our culture you know it's it's part of how we were raised as children um, and I I just wish if I could challenge one idea that people have about what willpower is it's really to give people permission to understand that, the reason we have willpower, the reason that your brain and body knows how to resist temptation, the reason that your brain can mount this defense against fear and anxiety that, that you need to overcome to have the courage to do something difficult, the reason you have that is because we are equipped to pursue the things that are most important to our survival and most important to our happiness and our well-being. And, and that's what we have these strengths for. And we should we should give ourselves permission to direct those strengths at the things that matter most to us. And if there's something you really don't want, it is such a waste of our strength and our energy to try to marshal all your willpower toward it. Whether it's, you know, trying to trying to control your thoughts or trying to be someone you're not, or trying to control something that as it turns out is really hard to control, like your weight. You know, there are times when you can say, this is not working, and I'm going to put my energy and attention toward what I believe will truly enhance my life and allow me to contribute to the world. And that's what we have willpower for.
1: But there but there are things that compete, that, that like you may say, you know, I really want to be healthy, but God, if uh, life wouldn't be, if I had to give up donuts, uh, <laughs> life would be horrible. So... So those two things are competing. Um, are they incompatible? Are they mutually exclusive?
2: Well, Let me take a very firm stand on this, that donuts are not incompatible with being a good person or having willpower or even having good health. I will definitely always come down on the side of donuts. And here's the thing. When people are talking about having to use willpower to make a difficult change, it's never about one donut. One donut is not going to destroy your health or your happiness, but often in our lives, we find ourselves in patterns, in, in habits that are creating more suffering than they are creating joy. You know, the people who most need to marshal their willpower toward food choices are actually the ones who, if you, if you take a look carefully, if they investigate their experience, maybe they'll find that they have a relationship with food that makes them feel worse about themselves, that is creating obvious negative health consequences that they're using food as a coping mechanism. And in those cases, the suffering is actually pretty clear and that's different than do you celebrate your kid's birthday with a donut? Um, and I think one, when, when I'm helping people figure out like what's a willpower challenge that I want to tackle rather than having people start with the most obvious choices, the things we tend to set new year's resolutions around. Um, but, but to really ask people what's something in your life right now that's, that's creating suffering. That you think if you were to change it, that habit or that pattern, it would relieve some of the suffering in your own life. And what's something that would create more joy or more meaning? And to, to find your way towards the answer to that question. And that's why we need willpower around food, not because there's some sort of moral imperative never to enjoy yourself.
1: Even with the best of intentions, even with a strategy in place, everybody who is trying to exert willpower will come to face-to-face with some temptation that's going to be very, very hard to resist. And so what do you do in that moment? What do you do right then when it looks like it's a losing battle?
2: One of the things I often encourage people to do is to imagine that they already know the end of the story. And this can really support willpower, whether you need I-won't-power or I-will-power. To actually imagine yourself a year or 10 years in the future where you've resolved this challenge y- you have made the change and to have a clear vision of that because one of the things we know is that willpower as a, as a strength or as an instinct in your brain and body it's really about the future and if you have a positive vision of your future your brain and body are more likely to shift into that that biological state that helps you say no or that helps you find the energy to keep going Um, And so, you know, if someone were to tell me that they felt hopeless about past failures, I would say create that vision of the positive future. And in a very non-woo-woo sort of non-woo-woo way, it's literally going to help the brain give you the resources and the strength you need the next time you try to quit or the next time you try to take positive action.
1: And so how does willpower work best? Does willpower work best when you take little steps? Or does willpower work best when you try to dive into the deep end of the pool and just go for everything? What, what's, the best, what's the best strategy?
2: Both. This is a wonderful yes and kind of answer that you can find evidence in the scientific literature for both of those strategies to take the smallest concrete steps, even if they seem like they couldn't possibly add up to the outcome you want, there are plenty of studies showing that any positive action, any small step in the direction of your goal can actually become cumulative, can lead to an upward spiral toward change, and you should never be afraid to do something because it seems too small. You know, as I mentioned, there's, there was one study that showed that if you can delay your first cigarette of the day, even by a few minutes, that increases your chance of being able to quit. And that's something that anyone can do. And you can sort of figure out what's your version of that, what's your version of delaying the first cigarette of the day and knowing that that can lead to positive change. But also, you know, at the other end, there's some people who when they get very clear about what they want, they know what their goal is or they know what that value is, that making a bigger change helps them because it becomes sort of part of their identity. So if you're someone who feels like I need to go into this all out, I need to make this a a core part of who I am. Um, I would never want to discourage somebody from taking a bigger step toward change if it feels like that's what's possible in this moment. I mean, the real answer is you start where you are and you don't wait until tomorrow to start.
1: But if you are to say, if you say to yourself, you know, I really want to get healthy, so tomorrow I'm going to start jogging twice a day. I'm going to, um, (laughs) I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to uh, drink lots of water. I'm going to, I'm going to do all these 17 things starting tomorrow, and I'm going to do them every day. That seems like a prescription for failure
2: you know, it might be for 99 people, but I bet you there's one person listening to this who, um, could nail that because that's part of their, their core personality. There's some people who are just all in, but I think actually your central point is, is quite important that, um, sometimes we set these extreme goals of change because it feels so good in the moment to make that vow. Um, we get this like hit, of optimism and hope and dopamine. When we say tomorrow is when everything changes and I'm a completely different person. And if you sense that that's part of what's driving all of these resolutions to, to do the different things that you, that you listed, um, that's when I say, okay, maybe slow your roll a little bit, pull back and say, what's the one thing that you definitely can do tomorrow and, um, trust yourself that that, can become part of this upward spiral of change it doesn't all have to happen tomorrow in order to be of consequence but there is that one listener i'm telling you probably somebody heard it and they're going to do it tomorrow because they hear it and they say yes and it's time well you know one of the
1: things you've said that really resonates with me because i kind of stumbled onto it myself that really seems to work is this idea of when your willpower is waning to force yourself to just wait five minutes. You know, don't eat the donut now. Tell yourself you can eat it in five minutes if you really want to. And I find that, that that's a pretty effective way to postponing it because in five minutes you've had time to think about it, and you know what? Maybe you don't need it. But these are all really great suggestions. Kelly McGonigal has been my guest. She's a psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University, and her book is called The Willpower Instinct how self-control works, why it matters, and what you can do to get more of it. You'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Kelly.
2: Thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Another day is here, and
1: you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app.
0: Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
1: Few things are as all-American as blue jeans. I'm sure you have a pair or two or three in your house somewhere. Everyone has worn blue jeans. So where did they come from, and, and what is denim anyway, and how is it different from other fabrics? Why did blue jeans become so iconic and so associated with America, particularly the American West? Well, as you might imagine, there's a fascinating story here, and journalist James Sullivan explored and uncovered it for his book, Jeans, A Cultural History of an American Icon. Hi James, welcome. So take us back to the beginning. Where did blue jeans start and why and how did they catch on? How did it all begin?
3: Well, blue jeans, uh, the the history is long and a little bit complex. Um, Denim work clothes actually began in Europe two or three hundred years ago. Um, What we consider today to be the modern blue jean, the mass-produced, factory-produced blue jean originated in 1873 with the Levi Strauss Company out of San Francisco. And the distinction is that the mass-produced jeans that Levi's began making have the copper rivets. Um, the copper rivets make the pants obviously more durable, they last longer, and um, at the time that was done so that miners and other working class people would have uh, durable work clothes. The rivets have since become um, part of the whole fashionability of of jeans themselves.
1: Everybody uh, knows what denim looks like and feels like, I mean you can spot it a mile away that that's denim, that's what jeans are made out of, but what is it and, and how is it different than other fabrics?
3: Denim is a uh, cotton twill material, but with the warp is dyed with indigo, although jeans have come in many different colors. And the cross-thread is undyed, which is one of the things that gives jeans their distinct look. Um, The more the indigo abrades off of your jeans, in other words, when you wash them and wear them and the the indigo starts to chip away, it exposes the the undyed uh, cross-thread underneath, and that's where the fading comes from. That's where the distinct fading look comes from.
1: So in denim, the threads going one way are colored, and the threads going the other way are not colored, they're white, so th- that's what makes denim, denim. And, and so who, who is Levi Strauss? Was he, a real, was he a real guy?
3: Levi Strauss is a real guy, sure. Um, Levi was a wholesaler in San Francisco beginning in the 1850s, when San Francisco was a boom town because of the uh, California gold rush. And he was selling all kinds of uh, household goods, materials, um, including denim, to retailers. And the idea of blue jeans, uh, he was selling something like an early version of jeans, among the many other things that he was selling for the first two decades of his existence as a a businessman in San Francisco. Um, He was approached in the early 1870s by um, a small-time tailor in Nevada who had come up with the idea of adding the copper rivets to make the pants more durable for his customers. And this guy, his name is Jacob, was Jacob Davis, had um, been buying uh, denim material from Levi Strauss for, for a number of years, and he approached his supplier and said, if you can help me come up with the cost for the patent application, we can split it. And Jacob Davis eventually went to work for Levi and um, ran the first factory that produced the first Levi, uh, Levi's jeans.
1: So the original appeal of blue jeans w- was the durability, That it, nothing else. It wasn't fashion, it wasn't ooh, cool color, it was just that they were very durable.
3: You know, I like to say that for the first 75 to 100 years of their existence as we know them, I don't think anybody really thought twice about them other than the fact that you wanted them to be durable. You know, you were pr- probably wearing them, uh, You were you were almost certainly wearing them for hard work. You were a farmer or a miner or someone building the railroads or a construction worker, cowboy. Um, You were doing hard work and you weren't wearing them for the way they looked. It was only really in the uh, 1940s, let's say, that that jeans really started to become something like a fashion item.
1: And how did that happen?
3: Well, in the early years, uh, the 30s and 40s, one of the first ways that the general mainstream of America came to understand what blue jeans were was by uh, seeing them in movies, in uh, Western movies. The the earliest cowboy heroes in the movies were sort of dandies. They were they, they wore a lot of fringe and fussy looking cowboy clothing. And then as uh, western films uh, grew up, the John Waynes and um, uh, men of his era started wearing blue jeans that um, they felt were a little more of an authentic farmer or, or cowboy look, which were dustier and uh, sort of more rugged looking. Students and young people in the 30s and 40s, 40s began wearing them in part because. They wanted to emulate their heroes from Western films, um, and also in part because they wanted to show, uh, college students, for instance, wanted to show solidarity with the working class. So artists, college students, and young people really started didn't start wearing jeans as casual wear until the 30s and 40s.
1: What is it about Levi's that makes them so iconic, and, and they seem to win the battle every time other jean manufacturers show up, Uh, you know, they've carved out a niche, but Levi's is still, uh, in many minds, uh, blue jeans. Levi's is blue jeans.
3: Well, they clearly have created a company that's had uh, astounding durability, just like the product itself. I mean, they they did um, essentially invent the modern blue jean in 1873. So that's a long time. And uh, the company was um, actually a regional company, um, mostly uh, recognized on the West Coast until... 50 or 60 years ago, Um, there was a time, it's hard to understand it now, but there was a a long period of time where there were other jeans manufacturers that were better known on the East Coast than Levi's. But one of the things that the company was great at, has always been great at, is uh, marketing itself. And um, so in the 30s, 40s, 50s, Levi's really started to understand maybe more quickly than any of their rivals that you could market these things not only to working men and women but also to young people um, as as their own kind of leisure wear and so Levi was really sort of instrumental in, in, in establishing that.
1: It does seem that a lot of gene companies have come and gone but who would you say are Levi's, ha- historically, have been Levi's biggest competitors in the blue gene business?
3: Well, uh, historically it's always been Lee and since the 40s Wrangler. Wrangler was founded in, uh, the Wrangler that we know today was founded in 1947 um, historically, it's always been those, those two companies, although uh, pretty clearly in the last handful, you know, there's, there's been uh, cycles in Jean's history where various uh, trendy designers have gotten a lot of attention. And uh, clearly in the last handful of years that don't quite put up the same numbers that Levi's does, but that have been grabbing um, the lion's share of the attention for, for the product. But historically, it's, it's Wrangler and Lee.
1: And certainly over the years, there have been different styles of jeans. You know, there's the button fly and the zipper fly and the extra pockets and a lot of different styles of blue jeans.
3: Jeans were button fly until the 20s when the Lee company actually introduced the zipper. One of the interesting things that I found in researching my book and talking to many different people who've been in the industry for a long time is that we tend to think of jeans in in stark terms going from the sort of rock and roll 50s look of Levi's and the other companies or the, or the cowboy look um, and then uh, suddenly in the late 70s and early 80s going to the, d- the designer uh, jeans of the disco era uh, Calvin Klein and Gloria Vanderbilt and guest jeans and Jordache and all of those brands when the fact of the matter is that from the mid-60s or so, jeans manufacturers had been finding many different ways to stylize jeans, to make them something other than the classic, uh, as I said, rock and roll or cowboy look that we um, think of as the, sort of the old-fashioned looking jean. In the 60s, um, kids started wearing their jeans lower on the hip. They started wearing much more flared bell-bottoms. Um, they started toying with the finishes, the washes, um, pre-washing the jeans, um, to uh, sell them with a with a pre-faded look and and uh, bleaching them and, and other uh, methods of changing the altering the appearance of the of the garment before it was even before it even hit the shelves. So um, uh, many different things were done to jeans before that designer jeans era that were that were intended to sort of stylize them, upscale them.
1: So James, here's a question. Remember remember, stonewashed jeans? I had several pairs of stonewashed jeans back in the 80s or, <laughs> or whenever they were popular. What does that term mean? What are, what are stonewashed jeans?
3: Stonewashed literally means washed, washed in washing machines with pumice stone. There's a, a fun tale that um, I uh, retell in my book about John Wayne. He did something that a lot of people did back in his day the jeans were never pre-washed in his day and so they came pretty stiff and you wanted to break them in before you started wearing them and a lot of people sort of started to realize that you could people would would lie down in a bathtub with them on for an hour or two so that they would shrink to to form fit the body and uh, one of the things that john wayne did was um... he uh... every time he was going to go on a new film set he would take his family on uh on a vacation beforehand, and they would, he, would, he would have his new pair of jeans that he was going to wear on the film set, and um, his family in a sort of a ritual would, um, would bundle the jeans up with rocks, tie them up, and toss them off a pier into the Pacific Ocean and leave them for a couple of days until the vacation was over with. And then when he dragged them out, they had been broken down and softened um, by, the stone, by the combination of the stone and the water.
1: Wow, I, I've never heard that story before. That's pretty interesting that, that John Wayne would tie up his jeans and throw them off a pier. But but as you point out, I mean, they, they weren't pre-washed, probably pretty stiff and uncomfortable, so he probably wasn't the only one to do something like that to soften them up.
3: There's a well-known uh, Hollywood designer, costume designer, who did real uh, stylish Western suits called Nudie Cohen, Nudies, the company that, that made all of those um very stylized, fringy, western suits. Uh, I did stuff for Elvis and lots of country singers. And in the early 70s, before any of the major jeans manufacturers, Stone began stone washing their jeans on a mass production scale. Uh, Nudie was another designer who did the same thing. He took um, industrial strength washers and tossed his, uh, his jeans um, into the washers with stone and um, uh, tossed them that way. It, it, from all accounts, I'm told the process is hell on, um, on the washing machines.
1: Yeah, I would think so. And and you probably end up with some very clean stones. Uh, you talk about how, uh, the prices people have paid for vintage jeans. is pretty amazing. Talk about that.
3: Like a lot of other collectible artifacts, you know, jeans have, have... One of the neat things about them is that they've been such a huge part of American culture for so many years that at this point, a pair of 100-year-old jeans, um, if it's in decent shape, is worth a lot to someone out there. One of the interesting things about that is, is the idea of globalization. I mean, one of the main products of, of uh, selling Western culture to the rest of the world has been blue jeans over the years. Other uh, cultures have historically um, loved the idea of blue jeans and what it says about American culture. And so in the 1980s, the Japanese were going through their huge economic boom And, um, looking for places to spend their money, essentially. And one of the ways that they, one of the places that they did that was on vintage American clothing. And, uh, not just jeans, but bomber jackets and, uh, Hawaiian shirts. Certain looks that dated, uh, to the World War II era actually were huge in Japanese culture. And, um, so collectors there started paying crazy amounts of money for, for vintage blue jeans. The, the collectibles market has kind of gone up and down a little bit since then, but, um, um, Levi Strauss, for instance, has um, a world-class archive of its own products, and they have been known to pay huge sums for genes that have been newly discovered that date back to 100 years or so. Um, in a lot of cases, they're called miner's pants because the genes will be found in um, in the mines of Nevada and and the West, um, they were used in a lot of cases. When they started to wear out, they would be used to fill cracks um, to keep the the insides of the cave sites uh, intact. And um, uh, excavators have found fairly good examples of old jeans socked away in in the, in the cracks of old mines in, in the West.
1: And if you were to look at a pair of those old jeans from way back when they were miners' pants if you were to look at them and feel them, I mean, would they feel like jeans or has the fabric and everything about jeans, have they evolved to such a point that you wouldn't recognize them?
3: They essentially look and feel like jeans, which is one of the amazing things about jeans. I mean, over the generations, uh, each successive generation for the last 50 or 60 years has initiated various kinds of twists on, on the product to make it their own, whether we're talking about The extreme wide bell bottoms of the hippie era or the extreme baggy pants of the hip hop era in the 90s but essentially it's always it's always remained the same garment and you you if you saw a pair of jeans from the 1890s uh you would absolutely recognize it as something very similar to what we wear today
1: so why do we call them jeans Uh, do you know where the word jeans comes from
3: I do. Um, the word jeans comes from uh, Genoa, Italy, which was a major uh, shipping port in the Middle Ages. And the French called the Genoans the Gen. And uh, one of the things that they made in Genoa was sort of a precursor to denim material, which was known as jean cloth. So that's where that name comes from. The, word, the term denim comes from a French industrial town called Nîmes. That product um, was known for um, hundreds of years as Serge de Nîmes. Um, which is shortened to denim. Both jean cloth and denim were uh, made in mass quantities in industrial uh, England and then brought over to America. And uh, denim is more durable than jean cloth, and at some point in the last 150 years or so, the two terms sort of became intert- interchangeable with one another. Um, the product is now made specifically with denim, not jean cloth, but we, we a long time ago, start, you know, sort of conflated the, the, uh, the two terms and started calling denim pants jeans.
1: And I remember growing up, we called them dungarees. So, where does that term come from?
3: That is actually uh, comes from a town called Dungaree in in uh, in India, which is another another part of the globe that um, several hundred years ago was already mass producing a um, a durable cotton cloth used for work clothes.
1: Well, it is interesting how jeans have become such an important part of fashion throughout so many different decades and throughout so many different. Fashion changes, and yet jeans are are a staple in all of them from the fifties on up. So, what do you think the future of jeans is?
3: Well, uh, I think that, excuse me, at this point, it's fairly safe to say that it's not going anywhere. I mean, over the last handful of decades, we've seen fashion commentators make the case periodically that. Maybe uh, Americans are getting tired of their blue jeans and want something else. Um, But uh, they always tend to come back around. I mean, they're durable. Not only is each individual pair durable, but the idea of blue jeans has proved to be extremely durable.
1: Sure has, and it's such a great story that pretty much we've all been a part of. My guest has been James Sullivan. He's a journalist, and his book is called Jeans, A Cultural History of an American Icon. There's a link to his book in the show notes. A couple of times over the course of this podcast, we've talked about germy things. Uh, Things like hotel TV remotes and bedspreads and telephones and refrigerator handles on your fridge in the kitchen, those kind of things. Well, someone's come up with some new things we need to be concerned about. For example, credit and debit cards. They are covered in germs. They slide into and through lots of filthy spots, and they can safely be cleaned with a disinfectant wipe. You just need to make sure that they're completely dry before you put them away. Electronics, phones and tablets, they're crawling with germs. You should check your owner's manual for cleaning recommendations because disinfectant wipes can damage some touchscreens on some phones and tablets. The back of your rugs... When you vacuum, you might want to flip over those throw rugs and vacuum the underside, which you've probably never done before. Toilet roll holders. Every time you switch rolls of toilet paper, you should probably give that holder a shot of disinfectant. And salt and pepper shakers. They are often the filthiest thing on the table with the highest concentration of cold and flu viruses. So wipe those down once in a while. And that is something you should know. Anytime you have a question or a comment or just want to say hi, you can always write to me. There is a contact form on our website, or you can write to me at mike at know.net. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know